You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 50, Egypt Epilogue with Derek Davison. Thanks for joining me. This episode, we are taking a step back from the narrative and returning to the Middle East. Now that Napoleon has left Egypt, the whole region has become kind of peripheral to our story. Egypt and the Ottoman Empire will probably get no more than a few lines for the whole rest of the show, despite being our setting for seven episodes. Napoleon left quite abruptly, without so much as a farewell, but I didn't want to leave you guys hanging the way he did with the Army of the Orient. So, before we see Bonaparte ascend to power, I thought we'd use this episode to provide an epilogue to our time in Egypt. I discussed the end of the French expedition in episode 48, but there's still a lot more to say about the long-term consequences of the campaign. The French were not able to realize the dream of a Middle Eastern empire, but their invasion and brief occupation still represents a crucial turning point in the history of the region. To help us unpack the legacy of the Egyptian expedition, I've brought back Derek Davison, an expert on Middle Eastern history who you'll remember from episode 40. Without further ado, here's my interview with Derek Davison. So, uh, I thought we'd start off talking about Egypt. The British stuck around until 1803, then they left the country to the Ottomans and the Mamluks. Uh, why don't you take us through what happened after that? Right. So uh, this is the place where Napoleon's impact was probably uh, most readily apparent because the Mamluks are not long for the world now having uh, suffered defeat at his hands. Uh, after Britain leaves, uh, and they'll be back, by the way, spoiler alert. Uh, after Britain leaves, the Ottomans see an opportunity uh, with the power of the Mamluks having been kind of broken by Napoleon, uh, to reimpose some imperial control over Egypt. I mean, we talked last time about how they kind of left the administration of Egypt up to the Mamluks, and they'd really lost power. Their governors were uh, virtually captive in, in Cairo, and the Mamluks were really running the show. So the Ottomans see an opportunity to to put themselves back in charge, and they send uh, they put together an army, a small army, uh, of Albanian recruits, and send it to Egypt to serve as the foot foot soldiers for a new governor. And they put the they put the new governor in place, uh, but fairly quickly uh, things fall back into the pattern of sort of factional. 
disputes and and power struggles. Uh, and this in this case, it's a three way thing. It's not just the governor versus the Mamluks. It's the governor versus the Mamluks versus this Albanian. Uh, army that was supposed to put the governor in power, but then put him in power and kind of stuck around to to see what they could uh, get out of being in Egypt. Uh, ultimately, uh, the Mamluks kind of try to play both sides against one another, and it's really the Ottoman governor and his own Turkish or sort of Ottoman soldiers uh, against the the officers of this Albanian military unit. But the second in command of the Albanian army, uh, whose name is Muhammad Ali, uh, does an even better job than the Mamluks of sort of manipulating all the the players around him. And eventually he emerges uh, not only as the commander of the Albanian force, but uh, ultimately as the governor. Uh, he gets appointed uh, in 1805 by the Ottomans sort of as uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that he was in charge in Egypt and there was really nothing they could do about it. Uh, Muhammad Ali had designs on establishing an independent kingdom dynasty that his descendants would rule from that time on. Uh, that wound up not happening, but they did. he did establish a hereditary governorship uh, that took Egypt through the rest of its, uh, well, all the way into the 20th century, actually. Uh his main initial goal, Muhammad Ali's main initial goal after he became governor, was to reform the Egyptian military, uh, which is obviously having just seen the performance of the Egyptian military against Napoleon, uh, you know, you want to rebuild that military along European lines to adopt um, European weapons, European tactics, all the things that uh, Napoleon's army could do that, that put the Mamluks at such a disadvantage. Uh, naturally, the Mamluks, who were doing very well for themselves and were resistant to change, even after, you know, kind of living through this uh, humiliating defeat by Napoleon, uh, they didn't want any part of this change. They were worried that it was going to ruin the, the cushy situation they had for themselves in Egypt, so they resisted. Um, and the dynamic kind of played back and forth. Muhammad Ali was uh, allied with the Mamluks sometimes when he needed them to sort of uh, challenge the governor, and then after he became governor, uh, there were factions within the Mamluks system that uh, one would occasionally be allied with Muhammad Ali, and another might you know, oppose him, and they would clash with one another. Uh, but finally, uh, in 1811, he decided enough was enough. Uh, the Ottomans made a request or order, I guess, since they were still nominally his, uh, his superiors, uh, that uh, Muhammad Ali put together an army to send to Arabia to deal with the first Saudi state, uh, and which was already kind of developing in Central Arabia and becoming a problem for the empire. Uh, Muhammad Ali took advantage of this opportunity, called a, a big, uh, had a big ceremony at the uh, the citadel in Cairo. Uh, to announce that he was putting his son Tosun in charge of the army and it was kind of a send-off send uh, ceremony for him. Uh, and he invited 74 of the uh, most senior leading Mamluks in the country uh, to attend this dinner, this party, festival. Uh, and they did. They went in. They had a nice meal. Everybody 
clapped everybody's backs, uh, you know, had a good time. And when the Mamluks at the end of the night uh, turned to leave, they found the gates of the citadel were closed and they were left stuck in the courtyard where Muhammad Ali had his soldiers basically massacre them, gun them down uh, in the courtyard of the citadel. Uh, that was the event that it's called the massacre at the citadel uh, that broke the power of the Mamluks for good and left Muhammad Ali sort of in sole unquestioned uh, control of Egypt. Now, I wanted to uh, to tease out a little more, you know, you brought up reform and something I've always found interesting, particularly in these Middle Eastern cases, is when states want to do this this type of military reform, they often find that, you know, the European style army is kind of a package deal with the European style state. And so that's often an entry point into other types of reforms. That that was certainly the case here. I mean, uh, the first thing that, that Muhammad Ali did was he opened an officer's academy. So all, already you're kind of uh, getting into the education system. Uh, he sent promising young officers uh, overseas to train uh, with European militaries in, uh, in European countries. Uh, and those officers would then return, naturally having been exposed to uh, the kind of froth of the enlightenment i guess or however you want to put it uh and also with training in european languages which was something that nobody in the ottoman empire had uh, had really bothered with until this point uh they came back with an understanding that as you say there there's more to it than just kind of training the military and and arming it you have to uh have training in a whole variety of specialized disciplines you got to have uh, training in medicine, modern medical techniques. You've got to have training in engineering. Uh, you've got to have training in chemistry to manufacture, you know, uh, explosives and other things. Uh, you've even got to have training in kind of veterinary science to take care of the horses. Uh, so all of these things, you know, they kind of came back with these ideas and Muhammad Ali began setting up other academies and all these different disciplines uh, to support his military reforms. Uh, he set up another academy to train people in European languages, which wound up uh, producing people who could do translation or who could be sent abroad as diplomats. Um, so the education uh, sector in Egypt was profoundly affected by these reforms. Uh, he had to do other things. He had to establish a census uh, in order to do an efficient kind of conscription into his new military. Uh, he had to finance the new military, which he did through seizing kind of old uh, feudal land grants and imposing taxes on things uh, like religious endowments that had heretofore been untaxed and were technically speaking under Islamic law, not supposed to be taxed. Uh, that also helped to reduce kind of the power of the old establishment, especially the scholarly community uh, who might have posed a threat to his rule, but they were, you know, uh, losing revenues. So they were uh, diminished in terms of their ability to be an opposition force. Uh, on top of that, he made some reforms in the Egyptian agricultural economy, he started experimenting with things that could be sold overseas and eventually settled on cotton, uh, which became really Egypt's major cash crop uh, and uh, started to, to try to build up 
domestic industry. And at first, that was limited to weapons production and textiles that could be sold overseas. Uh, but, you know, had an impact in terms of uh, providing jobs and uh, encouraging people to kind of come into the cities where these factories were located. Um, he instituted uh, what was essentially a command economy uh, where the government was solely, uh, you know, the kind of the sole buyer for these agricultural products and, and industrial products uh, and the sole exporter. And that, that brought in a lot, uh, a lot of additional revenue. So you already mentioned, you know, this, uh, well, not quite dynasty that he founded carried the country um, all the way up until pretty pretty recent history. So is it safe to say he was pretty successful as a reformer? Uh, well, he was successful in so far as the European great powers would allow him to be successful. Uh, um what what happened was, I mean, through all of this, up until World War One, uh, technically speaking, Egypt was uh, a part of the Ottoman Empire, and this dynasty that Muhammad Ali founded, uh, which you know initially he was uh, the governor, the Ottoman governor of Egypt. Eventually, they adopted uh, the title of Khedive, which is a, a Persian word that kind of means viceroy. It implies a, a kind of royal status. Um, and then, you know, eventually uh, became Egypt became a British protectorate in the 1880s. Uh, and then after World War One, when the Ottoman Empire was defunct, uh, the, the dynasty adopted the title of king, uh, which it held until 1952 when Egypt became a republic. Uh, but uh, the reforms that Muhammad Ali made... Uh, yeah, the problem for the, <laughs> the problem for the Europeans uh, in the 19th century, uh, as Egypt became stronger and these reforms really took root, uh, was the concern about the condition of the Ottoman Empire, which is something I think we'll talk about in a, in a little bit here. Uh, but Muhammad Ali went to war twice uh, with the Ottomans without ever kind of uh, giving up his subordinate status. He was very careful not to, to make that claim uh, of independence. Uh, but nevertheless, he, he went to war with them once uh, in 1831 18, to 1833, uh, after which he gained control of Syria. Uh, and he went to war with them again uh, in 1839 to 1841, uh, and that was the the war that sort of caused Britain in particular to intervene and say uh, enough is enough, because there was a real concern that Muhammad Ali was either going to establish his independence or he was going to kind of wipe out the entire empire, and, and the Europeans were very worried uh, that about what would happen to the balance of power if the Ottoman Empire broke up or, you know, was kind of uh, absorbed into some other empire, I mean, particularly, you know, Russia was seen as the big threat to to kind of move in and take big chunks of the empire and, and upset the balance of power. Uh, and at, in that, at the end of that 1839-1841 war, Britain put its foot down and, and forced Muhammad Ali uh, to give up his claim to Syria and to make other concessions. Uh, what he got in return was a guarantee uh, from the Ottomans, but also from the, the European powers that uh, his governorship over Egypt would be a hereditary thing that the Ottomans wouldn't be able to, uh, to take it away later on. But among those concessions uh, was Muhammad Ali had to agree to drastically reduce the size of his army. And that 
uh, affected all of these other reforms, which were made kind of contingent on building a, a really large, mighty military force. Uh, so a lot of that stuff atrophied the academies, um, atrophied, uh, and and so a, a big chunk of this reform effort died, kind of withered on the vine. Uh, some of the things that he instituted did remain and and are, I think, evidence of his uh, success as a reformer. Uh, Egypt developed a very strong bureaucracy in this period, really became kind of uh, a, a nation state, even though, again, nominally was still part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and that's that served Egypt, I think, in, in pretty good stead, uh, really up to the present day. I mean, it, it was Egypt's transition into uh, the modern world, if you want to think of it that way. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. All right, so I think now's as good as time as any to move on to the Ottoman Empire. Now, there were some similar reform processes uh, that were actually already underway when Napoleon arrived. Right, so uh, the, the conventional wisdom about this question used to be that Napoleon's arrival in Egypt was this massive wake-up call for the Middle East, and by Middle East, uh, we mean the Ottoman Empire. Um, more recently, uh, historians have discarded that notion, uh, mostly because the t- timeline doesn't work out. Uh, the Ottomans were already undertaking European-style reforms uh, at least a decade uh, before Napoleon showed up. Uh, and, you know, obviously, uh, the reason for this is the Ottomans uh, had uh, already were having, you know, had contacts, regular contacts with Europeans, and uh, more to the point, were regularly kind of losing wars to the Europeans uh, in the 18th century. So they knew so they knew something was wrong before Napoleon showed up. They knew that their uh, relationship or their kind of stature vis-a-vis uh, European powers like Russia and the Habsburgs uh, was very much on the wane. Um, you can go all the way back to the, the late 17th century, really, the, the Great Turkish War, which was fought uh, the Ottomans against the Holy League, which consisted of the Habsburgs, Russia, uh, Venice, and Poland-Lithuania. Uh, the, the Siege of Vienna, which began that war, uh, which the Ottomans lost and had to, to lift in 1683, uh, is considered sort of the high watermark of the Ottoman Empire because it's their furthest extent and uh, they would never reach that extent again. Uh, the war ended with the Treaty of Karlowitz in 1699, which was the first time the Ottomans had to conclude a treaty with European powers at a disadvantage. 
Or in other words, the first time they had lost really a major war uh, against the Europeans. Uh, They had to give up territory in the Balkans and Central Europe, mostly to the Habsburgs. Uh, That was followed uh, about 20 years later by the Treaty of Pasarowitz, which ended another uh, war that the Ottomans lost to the Habsburgs. They had to give up more territory. Uh, They fought a couple of wars against the Russians in the first half of the 18th century that were more or less inconclusive. Uh, but then the big blow came in uh, the 16, or excuse me, the 1768 to 1774 uh, Russian-Ottoman War. Uh, this was a massive defeat. The Ottomans were thoroughly wiped out, and they lost Crimea uh, to Russia. Crimea had a very special place in the Ottoman Empire, not just because it's sort of controlled the Black Sea, but because the the dynasty that ruled uh, Crimea as Ottoman uh, vassals uh, went all the way back, traced its descent all the way back to Genghis Khan. Now, there's some reason to question that, but nevertheless, that's what they claimed. Uh, it was the Jure dynasty. They were sort of the second royal family of the empire. Uh, so this was a huge symbolic blow to lose Crimea. Uh, and that was really the wake-up call. Uh, Selim III uh, is the emperor who starts uh, introducing these reforms. He became emperor uh, in 1789 uh, in the middle of yet another war that the the Ottomans were fighting. They were fighting a war against Russia and the Habsburgs at this point. Uh, They wound up losing on both fronts. Uh, And uh, although on the Habsburg front, it was a little inconclusive because the French Revolution happened during this period and the the Habsburgs are sort of eager to disconnect themselves from this war with the Ottomans so they could go deal with what was happening on their other flank. Uh, Nevertheless, I mean, it it was clear to Selim III that that something needed to change, that, that reforms were desperately needed. And so he did a lot of the same things that uh, we talked about earlier in, with Muhammad Ali. He instituted uh, European-style reform to the military. He, he tried uh, to bring in new weapons, new technology, uh, to institute new tactics. Um, and this required uh, ancillary things like the creation of military academies, uh, sending people to European capitals to sort of learn what they could about what was happening. Uh, Selim was was interested only in the military aspect uh, of uh, what was happening in Europe, but nevertheless, I mean, the people he sent abroad to kind of learn about the military tactics and learn about what, what these armies were up to naturally came back with uh, you know, ideas from that were percolating in, in Europe and uh, came back with knowledge of European languages, which again is something that the empire had never really bothered with. Uh, Salim eventually opened permanent embassies in uh, a number of European capitals, uh, which the Ottomans had never done. There were permanent European embassies in uh, Istanbul, but there were there were no permanent Ottoman embassies abroad until Salim's time. Um, And this led to a sort of steady flow of information about what's happening in Europe and not just on the military front, but, uh, you know, more broadly speaking. The problem for Salim, as with as Muhammad Ali had, you know, his problem with the Mamluks, uh, the problem for Salim was the Janissary Corps. The Janissaries had been uh, the, the kind of center 
the the rock on which the Ottoman military was built for uh, centuries, and they had at one time probably been uh, the premier infantry force in Europe. Uh, they were made up of freed slaves who were. Uh, you know, conscripted in what was called the Debshirme uh, from European families in the Balkans. Uh, and there were a lot of rules about what the Janissaries were not allowed to do, basically. They weren't allowed to get married while they were in active service. They weren't allowed to own businesses and do kind of ancillary things, anything that would distract them uh, from their duty as soldiers. Unfortunately for the Ottomans, uh, over the centuries, all those restrictions had become relaxed. They weren't enforced anymore. So what you had was a lot of Janissaries who were married, who did own businesses and were, you know, kind of very happy with their lives and uh, were not all that focused on going out and fighting for the empire anymore. They were more of a social class almost at this point, weren't they? I mean, yes. I mean, it's it's fair to say that they were, um, you know, they had established themselves as kind of an upper, I would say, upper middle class cadre within the empire um they were very suspicious as the mamluks were in egypt of these military reforms even though uh, initially at least salim sought to kind of institute these reforms via the Janissaries to bring these new weapons and train the Janissaries and using them, train the Janissaries in these new tactics. The Janissaries saw this whole process as a way to undermine their status in society. And so they they wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, Salim responded to this by saying, okay, if you're not gonna gonna take to these reforms and you're not gonna follow, you know, along with me, I'll create a new military force. And he created what was what's called uh the Nizam the Jadid, which is the new order, uh made up of Turkish conscripts. This was the first time that Turks had been uh, prominent in the Ottoman military, probably since uh the early decades after the founding of the empire. I mean, really, it had been a long time since uh, the Turks of Anatolia had had been this involved in the the military. Um, This just made the the reforms an even bigger threat to the Janissaries, right? It kind of of became, you know, kind of fulfilled the the prophecy in a sense. Uh, It proved them right that, you know, here's this new military force that's obviously intended to supplant us and is a threat uh, to our status. And we've got to do something about that. At the same time, uh, the reforms that Salim made fiscally to sort of pay for this new army, which were similar to the ones Muhammad Ali made in Egypt. Uh, He kind of seized control of feudal land grants and and brought them back to the state and used their revenue to finance this new army. That alienated the Darabes, who are this kind of feudal vassal class. Uh, And between the two of them, uh, the Darabes, who had been responsible for sort of producing levies in times of war, and the Janissaries, who were, for all intents and purposes, the standing military, uh, they formed a a kind of ad hoc alliance, uh, along with social conservatives who were concerned about uh, how European these reforms were, and they were, uh, you know, in a sense, thought, considered them to be un-Islamic. And these guys all kind of... uh, Together, worked together and overthrew Salim uh, in 1806, which ended uh, this first attempt at a European-style reform in the empire. Uh, 
then you know about 15 years later uh, you have the greek war of independence which is a real kind of uh, another real wake-up call a major shock to the empire greece gains its independence and uh, you know there's a there, that's a huge blow to to the ottomans uh, in the middle of that war uh, mahmoud ii uh, took power and in 1826 uh, he did away with the Janissaries in a way not dissimilar uh, to what Muhammad Ali had done with the Mamluks in Egypt. Uh, it's called the Auspicious Incident. Mahmoud basically called out his uh, his own modern style military with modern weaponry and artillery. And he armed actually the people of Istanbul, who by this point were pretty sick of the Janissaries. Uh, and they basically, you know, tr- marched themselves over to the main Janissary barracks in Istanbul and uh, blew it up. I mean, they reduced it with artillery and uh, killed the, the Janissaries inside. And that kind of broke the power of the Janissaries from that point forward. Um Mahmoud left a set of detailed instructions for his son and heir, uh, or his, actually his sons and heirs, there were a couple of them, uh, that became what's known as the Tanzimat Reform, uh, which is a period that lasted from 1839 until uh, the Ottoman Empire adopted a constitution in 1876. And that was, uh, you know, those that was a reform period, again, mostly modeled along European lines. Uh, that was the... Uh, the one that really took because uh, in part the the Janissaries were no longer a problem. Uh, The important thing I think for our purposes is to say that none of this stuff uh, really depended on Napoleon's invasion. These, these things happened because the Ottomans had their own experiences being battered around by uh, the Europeans and came of their own kind of accord uh, to understand that they, or to believe that they needed to uh, make these reforms. Napoleon's invasion was sort of uh, just another case in point, but the Ottomans already had, uh, had started down this road before he arrived in Egypt. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So I wanted to delve a bit into this question of decline. I'm sure a lot of listeners, and I'm sure you're probably sick of the term, the sick man of Europe, but that's not that's kind of part of the popular understanding of the Ottoman Empire, and not so much something that like scholars of the, the era talk about. So I was wondering if you could delve into that a little bit, you know, that question of decline versus, as we've seen, there was a lot of attempts to reform and bring the empire up to par with the Europeans. So what what's that dynamic there? There's, yeah, I mean, there's two aspects to the, the kind of sick man of Europe discourse. The one is uh, that, you know, the sort of European fear, as I said, that, that the, the empire was too weak to defend itself and that, you know, was about to be overrun by the Russians and that this would upset the balance of power. And that was probably a legitimate concern. Um, You know, I think uh, without getting into questions of decline or, uh, you know, the sort of decadent 
uh, rot of the empire, which is the other aspect of this. Uh, it, the empire was weakened uh, in the by the late 18th century and into the 19th century. It was not uh, as strong as it had been, and it was behind Russia and the Habsburgs and and you know other European states in terms of its uh, military, in terms of its organization. Uh, and it was a fair concern to to say you know this this empire is. Uh, kind of teetering a little bit and we have to worry about what that means for this very delicate system that we've crafted to keep the peace in Europe. Um, that said, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of a, a tendency to view uh, the, the empire in this period as this kind of decadent oriental place where the sultan you know kind of sat on a couch and got drunk and people peeled his grapes for him and fanned him with big fans and he had you know women from from his harem all around and that's that's a very misleading picture it's one that's uh, probably enhanced by some of the stories and the uh the art especially that that uh, napoleon's expedition brought back with it uh but it's it's not a fair picture there were several sultans uh as i said mahmoud ii uh, he was followed by abdul majid the first uh abdul aziz followed him these guys were very intensively involved in trying to catch up, trying to reform the empire. And they made huge changes. I mean, this is a period where the empire transitions from a kind of uh, what we would typically think of as an empire to a modern bureaucratic state in many ways. I mean, there is a a huge uh, kind of civilian cadre of of, uh, functionaries that are built up uh, during this period that that uh, are, you know, like anything you would see uh, in Europe. So there's a lot of change happening in this period. There's a lot of effort to get things, to get back to the glory days, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, it's not a period where the empire was just kind of listing and uh, resting on its laurels. And I think what what demonstrates this uh, most effectively, and part of the reason why uh, the sick man of Europe theory or the, you know, kind of uh, construct has fallen into disfavor is because if you look at the Ottoman military's performance uh, in World War One, it is a very effective fighting force. I mean, it holds its own uh, on many fronts uh, until eventually kind of just the uh, the overwhelming capacity of mostly Britain uh, wears it down in the Middle East and pressure from uh, Russia in the Caucasus wears it down on that front. Um, but for much of the war, I mean, the Ottomans, you know, more than hold their own with these European powers. So whatever emerges from this period doesn't seem like uh, the kind of state that's been that spent the last 150 years just kind of uh, decaying from within. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a trope that was talked about during during this period, I think, for understandable reasons, uh, and then kind of filtered into to the academic view of the Ottoman Empire. But it's definitely uh, not uh, the way people. In at least in you know the academy, uh, talk about the Ottoman Empire today, right? I mean, I always you know 
if they were declining, it was a slow decline because they did last a century after this period we're talking about. And then when they finally did fall, you know, those are the exact same forces that took down the Habsburgs and the Romanovs. So that wasn't unique. Right. I think, I mean, there are developments uh, like nationalism that the, you know, the the development of nationalism in the Balkans and in, in Greece is something that the empire was not prepared to handle. Uh, and, you know, that was a real blow. Uh, but I think the, the other the other thing, the other reason that people have an issue, I think, with the uh, putting things in terms of decline and decay uh, is there's a sense that uh, it, it obscures what was what the real dynamic was in this period, which I think was, you know, that Europe was developing at a faster rate. It wasn't that the Ottoman Empire was uh, on the decline necessarily. It was just that, that Europe was outstripping it. Uh, and if you talk about it in terms of Ottoman decline, then you raise questions like the infamous bernard lewis book whose title is what went wrong like something wrong happened there's something wrong with the muslim world there was something wrong with the empire there's something wrong with islam and you get into questions of kind of compatible islam's compatibility with the modern world and and you know that's just nonsense orientalist stuff i mean the to the extent that they're was a disparity. I think it was more because of the advances that were being made in Europe and the Ottomans at, at by this point by the you know the late 18th century and into the 19th century were were playing catch up. They were uh you know they just they would get caught up to where the Europeans had been 5 years ago and the Europeans were 5 years advanced from that. So uh, there was never a point where there was parity again, but I don't think it's because uh the Ottomans kind of uh, you know, sat on their their butts and and uh, just enjoyed the fruits of the Orient or whatever. Well, that actually is a very good segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is that sort of you know you already brought up Orientalism, um, sort of the the cultural intellectual view of that disparity between the East and the West. Which in the West we're talking about basically Orientalism. And then in the East, there were also some responses to that. Yeah, I mean, Orientalism as a field or Oriental studies was already kind of um, an active field by this point. Um, but certainly the group, you know, Napoleon had brought the, the savants with him. He brought this group of the group of scholars with him to um, ostensibly to... Uh, do things like start planning for the Suez Canal, which they did, which is one of the great kind of lasting impacts of, of Napoleon's invasion. Uh, but they brought back, you know, a lot of uh, studies of Egypt and, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, like scientific studies, things like, you know, plant life and animal life. Uh, they brought back impressions of Egyptian society. They brought back, uh, most importantly, I think, uh, you know, ideas that filtered into European art and literature. And so this is a period where you see a lot of paintings of, you know, decadent Easterners sitting on their sofas and uh, eating peeled grapes and the what and whatnot, and women, you know, kind of the the harem women and this sort of exotic nature of uh, the, the 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 kind of world of the East, um, and that that definitely I think fueled uh, 
the the or it helped form kind of the lens through which uh, Europeans in general began to view uh, the Middle East and and even the Far East. Although you know that's a, obviously a, a different story. Um, it it became sort of a part of uh, the way that academics treated the Middle East as a sort of exotic land that you dropped into and and jotted a few things down and then went back home and wrote about how strange these people were and uh, isn't it interesting that they do, you know, uh, these certain things. And it it fed a kind of us versus them uh, mentality among uh, Europeans, learned Europeans who are kind of attracted by this lifestyle, but also, uh, you know, kind of everyday people who, uh, you know, got this idea that, that this part of the world was different and strange and maybe even a little bit scary. So there's definitely a, uh, definitely that, you know, Napoleon's invasion contributed to that, uh, kind of, kind of understanding of the region. And then um, in the East, you know, what we've discussed already that, you know, this this decline concept is is problematic, I guess, would be the academic term for it. But there was uh, among Middle Eastern intellectuals an idea of um, trying to diagnose this and prescribe solutions to it. There's, yeah, this is another place where there's uh, a tendency to ascribe a lot of influence to sort of the ideas uh, that Napoleon brought with him, the French Enlightenment, the French Revolution, things like liberalism, nationalism, republicanism, you know, ideas about freedom and and rights and and that sort of thing. Um, It's hard to know where to draw the line because certainly some of that filtered out and there was some... uh, you know, influence, it had some influence on intellectuals of the the 19th century. Uh, but there has been, I think, uh, a movement to, to say, you know, it's it, that the influence isn't as great as uh, maybe we once thought it was. Uh, it, it used to be, you know, people would draw sort of a, a direct line from uh, the Napoleonic invasion to what's known as the Nahda or the Arab Renaissance uh, of the 19th century. But the the fact is, um, you know, there are people in the Arab world like Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, Muhammad Abdu, uh, who, are, who were reformers who diagnosed that something had happened to uh, change the nature of the the power dynamic between uh, Europe and sort of Islamic civilization. Uh, And they had a lot of different ideas about, you know, that revolved around kind of embracing the true nature of Islam. Uh, Muhammad Abdu was probably the first Salafi, although he wasn't a Salafi the way we think of them today. Uh, but he argued that, uh, you know, he, he wrote and argued about uh, Islam's compatibility with rationalism and modernity. And again, some of these ideas probably did filter in from, from Europe, although, you know, if we can say, can we say that they came from Napoleon, it's, it's more complicated. Uh, um, but these were, you know, very original thinkers who, who you know, we have to at least 
assume that a lot of this came to them. I think it does them a disservice uh, to say they were just kind of copying what people had heard from, uh, you know, the Napoleon from Napoleon's invasion or what they brought back from Europe. Uh, and they, you know, they wrote about the the ways that Islam could uh, kind of get back to its roots or, you know, find a, a way for uh, the religion and these fancy, you know, new European technologies and things that were coming into the region could could coexist with one another and could, uh, you know, uh, be you know, kind of exist side by side. Um they're also responding, in a sense, to the reforms that people like Muhammad Ali and and Selim the Third and uh, you know the Tanzimat uh, sultans in the Ottoman Empire, all the reforms that those guys were making, uh, and to the extent that those reforms were influenced by things that came out of Europe, I think you know secondhand. Then it's fair to say uh, that there was some influence, but you know to look at. Uh, the course of intellectual development, especially in the Arab world in the 19th century, uh, I think it's it's hard to say uh, just where the European influence ends and, and the sort of uh, you know their own kind of the own, their own ideas of these these reformers uh, kick in. We know, for example, like uh, you know, there's a, this idea that Arab nationalism began with the arrival of the Europeans and bringing the ideas of nationalism to to the Middle East, but nationalism arab nationalism wasn't a thing until basically the eve of world war 1 and even then it was only really a response uh, to the rise of turkish nationalism in in that sort of the the uh, in istanbul and sort of the imperial center so um you know there there's i think you can make too much of uh, just how influential these european ideals were yeah i actually um one of my favorite you know illustrations of that is um uh, there's a guy, Al-Jabarti, who was a Egyptian intellectual who lived uh, uh, during the uh, the expedition. And, uh, you know, the French, if you read French accounts, they say, oh, these people had no idea what, what freedom was or what, what a republic was. But you read Al-Jabarti and he, you know, the, the line in his diary is basically like, oh, apparently these people have a republic, kind of like in Plato. You know, he's, <laughs> right, <laughs> he's exactly. Totally, totally comfortable with the concept, com- totally familiar with it. You know, granted, maybe he wouldn't have been thinking so much about Plato had he not been presented with these people. But, you know, he had a he had a his own conception of these ideas, you know, ready at hand when he encountered them. Right. And I think I mean, we lose track of the fact that it was, you know, a lot of the works of Plato and Aristotle were only preserved for later European societies by the Arabs. I mean, they. Uh, you know, when they kind of conquered parts of the the Roman Empire, they they encountered these texts and they preserved them. They read them. They translated them. Uh, and it's you know only and you know Europe when when the the empire falls. I mean, they the Roman Empire falls. They kind of lose touch with a lot of this stuff, and it eventually comes back through. Uh, European contacts with the Middle East, and and you know that leads to things like uh, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. But it's yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, you sort of uh, I think there's a, a real kind of amnesia about uh, that aspect. Uh, now there is also uh, the problem that uh, Napoleon's uh, Arabic translators were so bad that they couldn't really communicate uh, very well with the Egyptians. So they probably, you know, uh, there was probably a disconnect there on some level too. 
Right. I mean, it's, you know, I think this is some of uh, this gets to the core of a lot of what gets obscured by Orientalism is that there is a lot of common heritage there. And, you know, the Ottoman state, different as it was in a lot of ways from European states, had a lot of the same challenges and a lot of the same kind of groups or at least similar groups within it um, as European states. And they just, you know, they weren't being on the periphery as they were, they weren't quite as quick on the draw as the other European states in solving some of these problems they had in common. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, the 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 concept, as I, you know, I, I I mean, I mentioned this earlier, but the the whole kind of dynamic of Orientalism is there's an us, which is the Europeans who are enlightened and advanced, and then there's a them, which is all of the peoples of the Orient uh, who are backwards and decadent and, and you know, uh, kind of uh, don't share our ideals and principles. And uh, it's it, it really does obscure, as you say, the fact that there's a common, uh, a huge body of kind of common literature and beliefs and ideas that that the islamic world was just as big a part of developing uh as uh europe was and you know it's uh it that that's that takes uh i think the relationship between europe and the islamic world into some places some some bad places that we're still reckoning with uh today well, I think that's the perfect segue into the the last thing I wanted to bring up, which is something, you know, as I was preparing for this, I was kind of, I kind of tended to look for the overarching themes. And uh, one of the things that I occurred to me preparing for this interview was um, just, you know, when you look at kind of the epilogue of Napoleon's expedition, um, just how many through lines there are from early 19th century Middle Eastern history right up until the modern era. So, you know, like on the, you know, political side, um, the, the, the uh, Hedivate takes us all the way to the 50s. And um, these intellectual questions we've been talking about still kind of shape the discourse about the Middle East in the West and in the Middle East itself. So I think that's interesting that there's, you know, that that's that there are so many through lines from this 200 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of ways that that um, Napoleon does. I mean, you know, without overstating uh, the impact of of the expedition, I mean, there there are a lot of things uh, about it that that kind of connect to the modern world. I mean, the his um, printing press. I mean, he brought the first uh, printing press to the Arab world. There were printing presses uh, in operation in Istanbul at the time, but but there hadn't been uh, any in Egypt or any other part of the Arab world. So that was a, a huge thing. I mean, that was a major development. Um, again, you know, I mean, because uh, his Maltese translators didn't know any Arabic, this didn't really do much for Napoleon. Uh, but the idea caught on. I mean, the first Arabic printing press was established in Egypt in 1822, kind of the first indigenous Arab printing press that wasn't run out of Istanbul. Um, you know, and that, that led to improvements in literacy, to the creation of kind of a pop 
popular literature, uh, the dissemination of ideas became easier. So that's that's a uh, a major development. And of course, you have the creation of the entire field of Egyptology, uh, or modern Egyptology, at least, and the discoveries that were uh, made during the, the expedition, especially the Rosetta Stone, which uh, unlocked hieroglyphics for people, uh, for scholars in Europe. I mean, just, you know, there were there were a number of things uh, about the expedition that um, had a direct impact on, on the modern world. I do particularly like the symmetry of, you know, you got Muhammad Ali's dynasty going all the way to the 1950s, and then who steps in after that? But a guy who looks a lot like Napoleon. <laughs> That's right. That's very true. I mean, Gamal Abdel Nasser is a, a, a very Napoleonic figure. He's uh, he comes to power, uh, kind of overthrowing a, a, a corrupt rotten order and corrupt monarchy and uh you know uh has big designs on establishing his own empire now nasser's idea was more uh that he wanted to merge the arab the various arab countries into a single thing he wasn't he didn't go out and uh, necessarily try to conquer them although he did you know help republican uh rebels around the region kind of go after their uh monarchies but nevertheless i mean the 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 vision that he had uh is very similar to the the one that i think napoleon had i really enjoyed uh on your show going through those episodes on nasser because i just felt like there's so many echoes you know people ask me that's a question i get a lot from listeners you know who's who's a good modern uh figure who resembles napoleon and i always point to to Nasser and uh, and Fidel Castro, actually, I think is also a kind of a Napoleon type figure. I think, I mean, I think the comparison with Nasser is very good, even up to kind of uh, the the kind of the end. I mean, any dream, whatever dream Nasser had of building this pan Arab state or pan Arab empire, uh, died with him, and it's it's similar to Napoleon. I mean, it ended with his his whole project ended with his death so I, I do think there are a lot of parallels there so that i think takes us naturally into um would you like to talk a little bit about what is going on in in derek world these days you've got a new a new project uh, yeah i i think last time we talked uh i was still blogging on wordpress but i've uh switched over to Substack. Uh, I've got a new newsletter where I also do my podcast and, uh, you know, other pieces. Uh, it's called Foreign Exchanges, uh, and the address is fx.substack.com. Uh, you can subscribe. You can sign up for the free email list, or you can subscribe for uh, $5 a month or $50 for a full year if you commit to that up front. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it'd be great to have people stop by and check it out. Well, I really enjoy it. I've, I've plugged your stuff before, and it's a pleasure to do it because I think it is a, a good recommendation. Anyone who enjoys this, I think, would get a kick out of what you do as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Anything else you want to add before we uh, cut off here? Um, I just would like to say I've enjoyed these two episodes and I'm, you know, I'm a big Age of Napoleon fan and uh, you're doing uh, great work. And thanks for having me on and, uh, you know, good luck with the, the rest of the project.
Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. The Middle East is a fascinating place, but mostly outside the scope of this show. If you want more Middle Eastern history, and to hear more from Derek, you can find him at fx.substack.com. I'll put a link to it in the description of this episode. Next time, we'll return to Napoleon's story for one of the most momentous events of his life, the coup of Brumaire. Until then, thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Dot com.